it's humbling, but at the same time, it makes you sort of reassess how important things are, you know. And I think for me, I was sort of really looking at it as an opportunity to start with a blank canvas again and say, well, what what am I passionate about? What do I want to do? Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading across the seas to Los Angeles to talk to one of Australia's favourite food Australia's favourite food identities, Chef Curtis Stone. Curtis, I am really thrilled to have the chance to talk to you today. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Well, thanks so much. It's a thrill to be on Dirty Linen. <laughs> I know it. I know you're super thrilled. Um, I think, you know, you've had a, you will have had a really interesting perspective on this whole crazy period that we're in at the moment with so much of your working life and family and friends over in Australia. But then, you know, you're very much anchored in Los Angeles as well. Uh, how are things at the moment? Look, things are good. You know, it's funny. I've had a, um, <laughs> it's funny. We talk about the pandemic like it's a personal thing that we've all experienced. And in many ways, it is. You know, and for me, it's been a total roller coaster. You know, business has been really challenging, but then it's also been good at the same time. Um, the restaurants have really suffered, uh, but people have been cooking at home more. And I'm lucky that I'm a bit diversified in the fact that I also make kitchenware for a living, cookware. Um, so that's actually been good because people are at home cooking more, but probably hasn't made up for the restaurant slump that we experienced. But we're sort of over that hump, I guess, from a business perspective, and the restaurants are back open and, and doing well again. So it's sort of, you know, it's been an interesting ride. I think personally, though, you know, I haven't been traveling and I've, I didn't realize how much I was gone until I was at home for two years, you know, and um, being home every night with my kids and my wife uh, for dinner and tucking them into bed and that kind of stuff that I missed most of, um, that's been really special, you know, and I'm, I'm so, so grateful for it. So, yeah, it's been it's been a, a, a big uh, variety of feelings, I suppose. Yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, I wasn't sure if you'd managed to get back to Australia for any period through this. Obviously, travel's very restricted, but, you know, is possible in some ways. But you've been based, you've been based in the US through this whole pandemic? I have. I haven't left. Um, I, I mean, we took a little vacation actually just recently because we were uh, all vaccinated and sort of felt like it was probably okay to do. But apart from that family vacation, we haven't, I haven't traveled once for business, which is just so foreign to me because I normally do at least six trips a, a year to Australia. And when you think about that, it's like, it's every eight weeks, you know, that you get it that's every six or seven weeks, depending on how long the trip's for. But I get on a plane to Australia very regularly. I go to Florida, um, maybe 10 times a year. I go to New York maybe 10 times a year. And then wherever else the world takes me, um, here, there and everywhere. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a big chunk of travel that I'm not doing, which I never thought I'd say this, but I'm really glad to not travel. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's like, I can't really imagine putting on proper clothes every day. I think, you know, we've all changed what we do on a day-to-day basis. I mean, personally, I'm, I am really looking forward to traveling. I'm looking forward to getting dressed up again, but I also feel like it's going to be a bit of a wrench. I mean, every time we've come out of lockdown, you do have to sort of remember how to socialize and how to be that more outgoing version of yourself. Do you anticipate getting back into old Curtis mode or do you want to bring some of this stuff through as, uh, as things get sort of back to kind of normal? 
I think a bit of both. You know, like I, I'm a very social person normally and I am quite um, uh, outgoing, I guess, and I, I love being around people. My wife always laughs because if I ever leave her in the house on her own, she, you know, curls up in front of the, a movie and makes popcorn and she, like, rejoices the idea of being on her own. And whenever she goes, I'm like call, desperately calling my friends to try and find someone to go and hang out with because I, <laughs> I, I don't like sitting at home on my own. So um, I, I do look forward to being more social than I am right now. But at the same time, I think, you know, if I had a dollar for every time my wife and I would sit on the back step and say, if only life could be a little simpler or a little slower or we weren't so busy or we didn't have so much to do or the kids weren't doing five different sports at the same time, you know, and then all of a sudden it happened and you were like, crap, like be careful what you wish for because now none of that stuff's real, you know, like, and it does make you sort of stop and analyse it a little bit and think, well, should we have ever been doing all of that? You know, as life's sort of starting to go back to normal over here, um, I, I guess you've got to be pretty disciplined in picking and choosing what you want to do so your life doesn't go back to an out-of-control mess again. Mm. I mean, and you've been one of those chefs. I mean, I guess a lot of chefs and restaurateurs have diversified their businesses over the past 18 months. You know, many chefs are continuing with those extra business streams, whether it's, you know, pantry goods or takeaway or, I don't know, cooking classes online. I mean, you have, you had a very diversified business before the pandemic. You know, is there part of what you do that you know you don't want to let go or are there some things that you do that you think, okay, I've probably made, you know, I've done my dash there. I'm going to consolidate and, and work on these things that I really love the most. It's interesting because the restaurants to me are just so special, you know, and I really love them. And if I sit down with an accountant and show him my finances, they quickly say, why on earth are you in the restaurant business? Because they're very difficult businesses, you know, like they're just very hard to, they're hard to make them break even, never alone make a profit or a living out of them, you know. Um, and especially when you care about them so much, you want to keep feeding it. You want to keep hiring that next great person and you want to keep buying that expensive glassware and adding something to your salary, you know, and it, that stuff doesn't, it's not free, you know. So you, your sensible mind says enough, you know, or, or just less, like have one restaurant, don't have three, you know, and, and then as soon as you get the opportunity to, you're like, but, but no, but I want to, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a hard like personal dilemma, I guess, to sort of, I love my family, but I also love my restaurants, you know, and I'm not putting one above the other in any way, shape or form, but you, you know, it's, it is hard to sort of, walk away from, you know, it's when you spend your life doing something, it's, uh, it feels a bit empty if you suddenly don't do it, you know. Mm. Well, tell me what's happened to the restaurants, how they've tracked, because I know Maud particularly has, you know, changed a lot. Um, tell me, yeah, tell, tell me what their pathway has been. So Maud was the, well, they all closed on the very same day because we got told we had to close them. You know, we had no intention of closing them. And of course, when you get an order from the, uh, the government, then there's no choice. You have a walk in full of food and you just put a close sign on the front door. Um, so they all sort of closed at the same time. And then we were quick to think, well, what can we do? You know, we were lucky at Gwen because it's a butcher shop in the front of the dining room and then the restaurant is obviously off the back of the butcher shop. So um, 
you know, we were allowed to stay open as a butcher shop. So I tried not to let anyone go. And I was like, well, let's all just keep cooking and the butcher shop will become a place that people can come for their meat, but also come for cooked foods and come for produce and come for eggs and come for milk. And so we sort of turned it into this incredible food store and, um, you know, so I thought, well, let's do the same thing with Maud, you know, like let's keep cooking and open the front door and let people just come and pick things up and take it home or we can deliver it to them. Um, and that worked well for Gwen and didn't really work well for Maud. Maud was uh, a much more difficult thing to figure out. So in the end with Maud, what I did was closed it and um, tried to sort of regroup. We did a pop-up um, at the Grove uh, and then – we reopened Maud as a pie shop. It's called the Pie Room by Gwen, and that was meant to be a pop-up, and it is. You know, it's still there, though. We haven't closed it down just yet because Maud, you know, a restaurant like Maud, it's uh, it's fine dining restaurants. Only it's a very tiny restaurant. There's absolutely no way you can socially distance that room. There's just, you know, it's it's a challenge. It's a bigger challenge than most restaurants. So I sort of really wanted to make sure that, things were back. The last thing I wanted to do was hire 20 people and then have to let them all go again if, if uh, the situation didn't improve. So I'm still in a bit of a holding pattern down there, although I've, I've really started putting the plan back into place to reopen it. Um, Gwen's back open, business is normal, and Georgie, our restaurant in Dallas, it also um, is back better than ever. It's, it's doing really, really well and, um, and open you know, every day of the week. I didn't actually even know you had a restaurant in Dallas. But isn't, isn't Texas in a bit of a mess? Look, Texas is one of those states that, you know, it's a bit of a law unto itself, Texas. You know, it's it's very um, independent in its thinking from the rest of the country. And it was I'm, – I'm not exactly sure what the COVID numbers look like the, today, you know, but it – did bad early on with COVID, but then it recovered really quickly and did really well. I think the vaccine pickup was pretty good throughout Texas. It's one of those interesting states that it's not a red state, it's not a blue state. Um, it's Texas. Well, Texas, do you know what I mean? It's the one state. It's almost like its own country. Um, and when I say it's not a blue state or a red state, it probably, you know, does go through periods of, of going one way or the other. But um but yeah, it's uh, you know there's a very independent train of thought over there, and they're they're sort of carrying on as business as usual. Whether that's right or wrong, you know that's the great debate of the pandemic, isn't it? You know, I remember at a time looking at Australia and saying to everyone, "We're all idiots over here," and Australia's got it all figured out. And now it's I'm not saying my opinion's the opposite, but the situation. You know, I was saying that because you guys were more or less COVID free and living a normal life. And now, of course, you've been in lockdown for months and probably got a lot more of it in front of you. And, and, and you know, like it's just it's so hard to speculate on. I find it difficult for people that have such strong opinions on it because I'm like, well, none of us really know, you know, like let's just be honest here for a minute. Like we all think we know, but we don't clearly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, I guess we've had so many real world examples of people and, and jurisdictions dealing with a pandemic in such different ways. And sometimes it feels like it's been sorted out one way or another, but as we've seen, you know, things keep changing. You get curveballs like the Delta variant and, you know, things change all over again. I guess one thing that Australia is much more 
it's, it's one thing that one way in which Australia really differs from the US is that we're much more regulated. And I mean, you you'd be really aware of that from your experience with the two countries. You know, Australia, it's, it's you know, there's a lot more that we had a lot more rules around COVID. The restaurant landscape is likely to be a lot more regulated in terms of vaccine passports when we do reopen in Melbourne and Sydney. So it's um yeah, it's a really interesting and 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 yeah, varied landscape. That's for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm really, I just really kind of uh, imagine it must have been super heartbreaking for you to close Maud because I know that you really put your heart and soul into that restaurant, so much emotional investment, and it was really the restaurant that proved that you're not just a TV chef and a guy that writes um, beautiful cookbooks, but that you are, you do have your chops. It was really, you know, super creative, such a, an, a really great forum for you to put your stamp on on contemporary cuisine. I mean, what what did it feel like to have to let go of that at least for a period? Look, I think you're so charged up at the time that you're like, there's no way I'm letting this go. You know, like it's, we're definitely coming back and, you know, but then you go and talk to the team and you are really like a family, you know, you spend so much time with your work family in, in the restaurant business that it's really challenging. I cried. I stood there trying to tell everyone what was going on and I stood there, got super emotional, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, pull yourself together. It's a bloody restaurant. It's a business. It's not, you know, it's not one of your children that you're sending off to college. And But it's it's hard, you know, it really is. And then you do go through that um, crazy headspace of imagining closing it down and, when you build a restaurant like that, you built, you know, you pick every single thing, every little teacup, every little nook and cranny in that building. I chose and I went to flea markets for and I bought at antique fairs. And, you know, like it's, it's a strange feeling to imagine putting it all in a box and giving someone the keys back, you know, and it's, yeah, I'm not sure how you do that, to be honest. I really don't. Like that's a very emotional journey but at some point you probably have to do it you know so yeah but I'm not there yet <laughs> I'm not I'm not, uh, I'm not strong enough to, to pull that pull that trigger so we'll reopen probably within the next few months um, maybe even sooner and uh, you know you will sort of carry on now I don't know if that's the right choice or not to be honest but it's the one I'm going to make and um, you know look I think Sometimes you, you do different things in your life for different reasons. You know what I mean? And you mentioned how personal Maud was to me, and it really was. You know, it was a, it was in some ways a statement to other people, but in some ways just a statement to myself. You know, like sometimes you just wonder whether you can do something, and you're like, I wonder if I'm good enough to do that. And um, I really wanted to to try it. You know, so it's yeah, I can only imagine what it's like for people that have no choice with their careers as to what, you know, like a, an athlete, for instance, like at some point your body just doesn't do what it used to do. So you, you retire, you have to, you got no choice. And I can imagine that stuff being really difficult, you know, but um, I'm fortunate that I, I get to keep doing what I love. Yeah. I mean, for so many people, this is, this pandemic has been the first time that we've really had to confront it, these massive external events that have stopped us doing what we want to do, you know, what we think we were born to do. And it's really it's really, it's really confronting. You know, so many of us have been so lucky and been able to make choices about our lives. I mean, what has it been like for you? You know, you've made such big choices for yourself along the way. And this, you know, then this is, this is a massive impediment that you just can't step around. What was that? What's that feeling like? 
Oh, goodness, it's interesting. It's humbling for sure. You know, it's a reminder. It's like going for a surf and you get into the water and as you're paddling out, you're thinking of, you know, how you're going to carve a wave up and then you get smashed by a wave and you just realize that you're this tiny little thing and you're not in control. You know, it's, um, it's humbling. But at the same time, it makes you sort of reassess how important things are, you know, and I think for me, I was sort of really looking at it as an opportunity to start with a blank canvas again and say, well, what, what am I passionate about? What do I want to do? And, and, you know, I think the thing that's firmly on top of my list is my family. I want to be a good dad and I want to be a good husband and I want to like invest in my family and uh, reap the rewards of them as well, you know, and, and I've really been doing that and I love it. You know, it's, it's certainly my favorite thing in the world. And, you know, the last thing that you want to do is to be, you know, there's so many people I think that go through life and you just get caught up in whatever rat race you're in. And then at some point you get spat out the other end of it and you're like, Oh God, Oh, that, you know, like my opportunity to do X, Y, or Z is over. Um, and I can't do it now, you know. So in some ways I feel like this has been a really interesting moment that everyone's had to stop doing what they're doing and, and actually have a good think about it. Like, do I, am I happy? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And is there something better? And, um, you know, I've, I've, I think I've been pretty good at like just accepting what the, what the world's serving up and being like, all right, well, we're closing our restaurants for a time. You know, we had, we just launched an events business in Australia and, it was literally two months old, you know, so all this investment, all this work, all this energy. And then of course events just disappeared overnight. It was just like, boom, 10 cancellations. That's it. You've got nothing left on the books and you just have to sort of go, well, well, (laughs) we're going to put it on the shelf and pull it, dust it off when we can. And, you know, sure enough, that's, that's exactly what we're about to do, but it's uh, yeah, it's not easy. What are you hearing and what are you finding in terms of staffing the restaurants? Look, if I'm being really honest, I love my industry. I am just such a champion for it. I think it's such an incredible thing to, to be able to create beautiful hospitality for people that you've never met before. I really think it's a special industry. That said, it's a very difficult business model. And, you know, it, it's most people go broke. <laughs> I mean, what a horrible business to get into. Come, come try your luck. You'll probably go broke, but you never know. You might do okay. You know, it's a, and for the, for the workers in our business, it's always been really hard. You know, you've got the majority of a restaurant works on or close to minimum wage. You know, there's only a handful of people in that building that, are above that, you know, and it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of why the tipping culture has always been the tipping culture in different countries because the people just don't get paid enough to live off. So people will, you know, give them a little something extra and it is a real challenge. So at a time, like I'm always nervous whenever I have someone go on a vacation, I always think I wonder if they'll come back happy or if they'll come back and hand in their notice because it's that moment of reflection that you're going to look at and be like, is it worth it? You know, I, cause you do give up a lot to be in the hospitality business. You're not with your friends and family on weekends and you're not with them at night times and, um, they're big sacrifices. So what we've experienced over here is a mass exodus. There's just so many people that have left our industry altogether and they've either got a real estate license or they've taken a break or, you know, and who knows how many of them are going to come back. But I do think that it's a moment that the entire industry really has to stop and go, well, 
was there ever a future in it? And I think there kind of was because people were just doing what they do, but now that they've had a minute to think about it, they don't want to do it. So as an industry, it's our job to say, all right, well, how do we create more for the dishwashers and the glass polishers? And how do we create something better for the people that are prepared to come and work in this business? And and we've got to figure it out. And it probably means charging a little bit more for our product so that we can afford to pay a little bit more to our team. Um, and, it, you know, it's sort of sometimes it blows me away because I think to myself, God, you can go out and eat a meal in a restaurant for about the same amount of money that it would cost you to go and buy the ingredients and cook it. How's that possible? And it shouldn't be, you know, it should, it should be, there should be a premium to, and it should be a bit more special than that. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a complex situation for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is really tricky because it would be hard to sort of unilaterally decide that you want to, let's say, pay everybody more, to don't make it so that people don't have to rely on tips in the US. I mean, it, I mean, it, what do you think about that whole tipping culture? Because, I mean, Australia, obviously people love tips here, but um, people are still paid, um, paid a salary with, you know, that hopefully works without them. Um, I mean, how could you? How can you sort of balance that out in your mind, having that experience of the two different different cultures? Look, you have to pick a lane, and at the moment, I think in both countries we're sort of driving right in between two lanes. You know, it's more so here than than in Australia. But you know, the big inequality to me, and the reason that the industry's been so beat up in the US, I think, is because as a cook, as a junior cook you make minimum wage and that depends on what state you live in, right? It could be as high as 16 bucks 50 or it could be as low as $6. And then a waiter makes the same minimum wage, but the waiter makes 200 bucks a night in tips, but the junior cook doesn't. <laughs> and it's like, how is that position rewarded differently than the other position? Because they're equally as important. They're equally as challenging, as hard. Some would argue the cook's life is harder and some would argue the waiter's life is harder. But I think the truth is if the customer actually understood it, then they'd probably just want to, if they wanted to leave a tip, it would probably be for everyone, not the poor person whose job it is just to polish glasses around the corner that doesn't do anything else, you know, so... I think there's some really like large problems with the tipping culture. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, that there was a bit of a movement over here, which I was a part of. We started a service charge in our restaurants. We encourage people not to tip and ask them to, you know, contribute in a way. And then we took that 15% or 18% service charge and then tried to divide it in a more even way. You run, you run the risk of getting yourself into legal problems by doing that, you know, because in the great land of the United States of America, anyone can sue you for any reason at any time. So, you know, if somebody feels like you're taking their money and giving it to someone else, they've got the right to sue you, you know, and it's, there's, so, oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's a challenging, um, so, and, and that's happened quite a bit, not to us, but I've, I've heard of cases of it and, um, you know, there's, so anyway, it's, it's, it's a very complex situation, um, which is, uh, not easily overcome to be perfectly honest. Right. So you don't have that service charge anymore. Well, we've always had a service charge at board. We started Gwen with it and then we took it away. Um, because it's a different restaurant and people are coming to you for a different reason. And I think in a more, um, 
in a higher end restaurant, there's a certain level of understanding um, as to why you do it. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. It also it kind of you know it's sort of it also just makes you look a little bit more expensive, if you know what I mean. Because when it comes, there's a if the check comes and it's two hundred bucks. Or if the check comes and we've put an 18% service charge on it and suddenly it's $236, even though one you're going to tip and one you're not, I think even though you add the tip onto the $200 check, you still walk away from that dinner thinking, oh, dinner costs 200 bucks. But if you add the service charge on, I think people leave thinking, oh, it costs nearly $240. And there is that psychological change in how you think about how expensive something is. So... um, yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's so messed up. It just, it just, it just, there's so many mind games around it because I think when someone who tips, I mean, I like, I tip, but you know, I just think that tipping culture where it feels like part of what you pay is, is your generosity, like you're bestowing it upon someone. I just think the power dynamics in that are really problematic. Um, it's like, it's different to, I don't know, should it, it, I think it's, as you say, it's like it's not different that someone brings the food to your table and that someone's working hard in the kitchen to look after you. It's, 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 there shouldn't, there's, it's just, it's just a really messed up value equation and power dynamic that's inherent in tipping culture. And it's just, I can't express it properly, but it just makes me feel bad. It makes me feel like the, the power's in the, in the wrong place and that money speaks in different ways. And yeah. It's um, it's the value isn't where it should be. You're absolutely right. And, you know, if you dig even deeper into it, especially in if you look at it from an, uh, an equity perspective or uh, even a, uh, an ethnicity or a cultural perspective, you know, most restaurants, there's a lot of migrant workers in restaurants. You know, restaurants were sort of built off migrants' backs, you know, and when you actually stop and look at it, there's a lot of Spanish-speaking people in kitchens in the U.S., and most of them work in the back of house, right? And most of the um, English speakers work in the front of house. And so you even start looking at it a little deeper and you're like, this is nonsense, you know, like it's, mm. not, it's not fair that um, because people come from a slightly different place or whatever that, that they're entitled to something different. Now, of course that's not the diner's um, uh, intent when they leave a tip, they're not trying to insult anyone. They're actually trying to reward someone and say thank you for looking after me. But it's um yeah, it's a it's a very complex situation. Yeah, well, you become part of an ecosystem that you, your your money sends a message, even if it's not you know the thing the thing that you want to say. And if, I mean, you mentioned you know race and ethnicity, and if, that is a massive part of it. So is sexism and misogyny, where you think about female front of house staff who feel like they need to be a certain way because otherwise they're risking their tip. You know, it's um that it's so problematic. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Um, okay, let's talk about pies. <laughs> We're coming up to a grand final here and you're running a pie shop in America which doesn't really understand pies in the same way that we think about them here. What's the what's the go with the pies that you're doing um, at, in the Maud site? Well, we called it the pie room by Gwen because we, we, you know, we wanted something for our bakers and pastry chefs to do through the pandemic and, you know, we were sort of playing around with some different ideas in a bakery baking bread and what's nicer than freshly baked bread. And, and I, I just made a comment and I said, I think the whole world needs a big hug, you know, and Amy, who's one of our, our bakers that works in the restaurants with us, 
I was like, Amy, they all need one of your pies. And it was just an off the cuff joke, you know, because she makes these unbelievable sweet pies. And she's like, I would love to open a pie shop. And I'm like, oh my God, me too. But mine, it all be meat pies. You know, I want to make rabbit pies and beef pies. And she's like, let's do it. And, and it was literally that simple. It was just a conversation as we were working, doing something else. So then we just started playing around and I made a bunch of, you know, cause of course you have to educate everyone. <laughs> no one knows what a sausage roll is. And you sort of, you start off by making some of that stuff and watching the reaction to the team. So we decided we'd dip our toe in the water and, and we do just that, you know, we make some more exotic stuff with, um, we make like a beef carbonade pie, which is made from beef shin with caramelized onions and, um, a dark beer. We do an oxtail, um, we do rabbit, you know, so we do a variety of those kind of pies. But then we also do a shepherd's pie and just an Aussie meat pie. Uh, we make sausage rolls, which is my mum's recipe. And then we do a bunch of sweet stuff too, pastries and um, tarts and, and sweet pies. You know, Americans love sweet pies from pumpkin pies to apple pies and um, and everything in between. So, yeah, we've, we've been uh, – and, you know, like uh, when we first opened it, we sort of thought, you know, if we sell a couple hundred bucks worth of pies and we can pay for the ingredients and hire a person or two, then it's worth doing. Um, and we, uh, it's just, you know, we've had a line down the street ever since we started it and people who knew that the people of Beverly Hills really needed a sausage roll, but they do. That's our number one line. They love our sausage roll. Wow. You're really educating people. It's so good. I mean, who doesn't need a sausage roll? Come on. My dad thinks it's hysterical. He's like, you know, you went and worked in all these Michelin starred restaurants all over the world to open a sausage roll shop. (laughs) He he thinks it's pretty funny, but um, you know what? I paid the bills during the pandemic and we're very grateful for the Aussie humble pie. Well, I think, you know, one thing that I think has been a feature of the pandemic is, is people really appreciating good, simple food. I mean, as you say, like people need a hug. Like I think comfort food has been uh, a real feature, but so has people who are doing something something classic but doing it really, really well. You know, there's a lot of one-dish businesses that have popped up and I think it's really telling. It sort of goes back to the simplicity that you were sort of talking about earlier. It's like maybe we were all hankering at some level for things to be a bit more simple. You know what? In Los Angeles, there was no pollution and everyone's spoken about the marine layer in LA for God knows how long. And then last year, the marine layer, in my humble opinion, totally disappeared because there was no one on the road and there was, you know, like we went through a pretty intense time here in LA when a lot of people were getting sick. So no one was really leaving the house and you kind of like, God, it's nice just to give the city a minute to clean itself up just like it is personally. It is on a much bigger scale as well. Um, and, it, you know, I don't know about everyone else, but it really made me stop and analyze how we shop and how many boxes show up on your doorstep from some delivery service and how full your garbage can is at the end of each week. And, you know, I think the world really does need that little bit of like inward looking and thinking so you can, you know, just reassess things a little because it's gotten totally out of control. You know, the fact that there's this giant debate about global warming and is the environment, of course it is, you know, like, are you joking me? Like, let's just stop for a minute and have a look at what we're doing to our oceans and to the landfills. And, you know, like we've got to be so much more mindful, but the, you know, we go to this debate about which team are you on and it's so stupid. It's like, just get a grip of yourself and like try, try and do a little bit better. That's what we have to do. Mm, yeah. 
couldn't agree more. Um, Curtis, I really hope that we do take this opportunity as a, as a race to um, think about things that we do, do things a little bit better, um, look after each other and, and the planet a little bit more. Um, I'm really excited to hear where you're at and um, to hear you talk about the future. I mean, would you say you're basically feeling optimistic? Look, I really am. You know, I feel like we're over the worst of this pandemic and there is a vaccine. You know, there was a time there when we're all sitting around thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen, you know? And we, I know it's not perfect and there's not an absolute soul for it right now, but we can get vaccinated and we can stay on top of it, I think, and we can have fresh eyes to look at the way we're doing things. And, um, you know, I think no matter what business you're in, it'll still exist. It might get changed. It might get morphed. And, and you know, th that's just the way of the world, you know, like it's, it's a nice time to sort of remember that we're just a tiny little part of it. And we've got to sort of dance to the beat of the, the drum that you don't necessarily get to dictate what it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's okay to be told what to do once in a while. <laughs> Love it. Um, well, I really look forward to the day when you can come back to Australia and see how we're all going here. Um, I think we feels like we're a little bit behind the US in some ways at the moment. But, yeah, as you say, things are going to shake down and uh, Australian diners will be back out there soon enjoying uh, Australian restaurant hospitality. Um, Curtis, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat today. I really do appreciate it. It's been awesome to check in. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.